Thank you, Jean, for putting the pulpit down. <laughs> uh, I apologize in advance if I'm uh, fumbling around this morning. I usually try to insert all the scripture in my notes, and I didn't get that done this week, so I have to go back and forth between my trusty Bible and my notes. Uh, we're going to return again to the book of Nehemiah uh, on this Reformation Sunday. It's a time for us to continue the story, one of the last chapters, really, in the Old Testament in terms of the actual history of what we think of as the Old Testament. And in this, we have, if you remember right, Nehemiah starts out in Susa, and let me turn this on, and this is where we're talking about, is we're talking about the area basically from over here, which would be in Iran today, all the way across Iraq, back down through Syria, and into Jerusalem. So our story starts in one side of this area and ends up in the other as we go through things. Um, the maps that are up here, there's a copy of them in the back back there if you want to have a copy of them. Remember who Nehemiah was. He was a cupbearer to the king. He was of Jewish heritage. We're not certain whether he was a priest or a Levite or what his, what his background is, although we appears that his brother is a priest, and that would probably make him one as well. So we have this area. Uh, this area we talked about before is an area that's roughly the distance of the Canadian border to the Mexican border, border through Washington, Oregon, and California. And the journey, because this area out here is called the Empty Quarter, there's nothing there. <laughs> there wasn't then and there isn't now. But there's a great deal of area here that's called the Fertile Crescent. And this area around here is how much of the journeying went. The Persian Empire, which was who was in charge of this area at this time, was an amazing empire. It stretched from India in the east all the way over to what's Turkey today. It was an amazing empire, and to think of it being managed and ruled by basically horseback is, is astounding. With our communications today, trying to rule that big a space would be a, a difficult thing with airplanes and trains and cars and cell phones and all of that, and yet they managed to do it, and do it for a number of years. Now our story starts out in Susa, which is one of the capitals of that Persian Empire, and we start there, and we end up in Jerusalem, and most of our story is in Jerusalem today. So we start out and start in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9, and if you remember when Barry Arnold was here, uh, four weeks ago, he took us through verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now, in that chapter, Nehemiah goes and presents himself to the king. The king notices that he is disturbed, and then Nehemiah makes a request. And he says, I would like to go and restore Jerusalem. Now, previous king of of the Persians had already issued an instruction nearly a hundred years before that the temple in Jerusalem was to be rebuilt. Now unlike most of the conquering peoples in that area who their position was that if we conquer you that means our God is greater than your God. Therefore you must adopt our God which was one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar tried to pull on the Jewish people. And Nebuchadnezzar came to the conclusion that wasn't necessarily true. Remember how God got his attention? 
He caused him to have what we call today a serious case of identity crisis, mental illness, and he spent seven years grazing in the pasture with the sheep and the cows. And at the end of that, he came to the conclusion that the God of the Jews was the God of the universe. Well, the Persians, who were bright people, had the philosophy that for any part of their empire to prosper and to do well, the God of the native people, the people of that area, must be honored and worshipped. So it was easy for them to want to have the temple in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar had leveled to be rebuilt. And they had issued a command and Zerubbabel, who was one of the priests, took uh, roughly 40,000 people back to Jerusalem, and they spent a number of years rebuilding the temple and started working on some of the reconstruction of the walls and things like that, and the effort kind of ran out of steam. And in fact, we got to a point where the neighboring rulers, provincial rulers, had said, these Jews, if you let them keep doing this, will rebel. And so the king had said, okay, we're going to pull the plug on this reconstruction in Jerusalem. And it stopped for a while. Nehemiah's brother came back, we read about in chapter 1, first few verses, shared what the conditions were like in Jerusalem. Yes, the temple was sort of working but things were in terrible shape. So that's where we get. So now we're about 140 years after Nebuchadnezzar, and we have this taking place where Nehemiah is getting ready to come back to Jerusalem. Now, he comes back with a set of instructions, and we read about them in chapter 2 starting in verse 6. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to... Aspath, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. And that's where we were when we last had the conversation. So Nehemiah is getting ready to make the journey. Now, the journey that he has to make starts clear over here in Susa. Now, when he talks about the provinces across the river, remember he's talking about being in Susa. And he's looking out here toward the Mediterranean Sea, and what river is he looking across? Well, there's the Tigris River, and there's the Euphrates River. And primarily, the Euphrates is the one they're talking about, being across the river. Remember, this is the empty quarter. So his journey would have been from here, maybe a little more direct, up along the Euphrates River, over, down, and finally all the way to Jerusalem. That's roughly Seattle to San Diego on a horse, donkey, or camel. Mm. About the same distance as the Oregon Trail from St. Louis to this part of Oregon. A rather lengthy journey. Over some hills, not quite the mountains that you had to cross, but at least it was a lengthy journey. Not every day was pleasant. Not every day had water at the end of the day. So you had to plan ahead, you had to be ready for it. But his primary concern was when he got to this neighborhood here where Jerusalem was, was that there's some rulers around here 
that are part of the kingdom, the Persian kingdom and their provinces, and he said, the local rulers aren't going to like this. Now, why did he conclude that was the case? Remember what his brother had said when he came, looking back in chapter 1, and in verse, uh, let's see what it was. Uh, Verse 3, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So that's what Nehemiah was expecting. Now the question becomes, who are these people? Well, Samaria is what's left of the northern ten tribes of Israel. After Assyria had come in and deported most of the people, they had moved other people into Samaria, and these people were intermarried, Jews intermarried with whomever else had come in. So they're no longer pure-blood Jews. Over here across the river, we have Ammon. These are people that used to be part of the two and a half tribes that chose not to cross the river of Jordan. They too have been conquered and taken away as part of the ten tribes. And now those people that they supposedly conquered have repopulated that area. Today that area is known as Jordan. We have this, oops, we have this area down here which is Moab. Now, if we remember who Moab is, that's a group of people that come from Jacob and who? His brother. And also the people from Ishmael, the son of Abraham, who was not chosen. Isaac was the chosen son. Ishmael was the son of the handmaiden. Those people populate, get back here, get to the right place here, populate this area over here. This area down here is an area that was populated by people that didn't get pushed all the way out of the land of Israel when, when the Israelites were in conquering the land. So as the Jews were removed, these other people covered these areas, and they were rather territorial, and they really didn't want the Jews back in their space. So now we have the journey. And this area, oops, I keep hitting the wrong button here. So we have this area in here. Some people called it Yehud. We call it Judea in its smallest geographical area. You'll notice you have Jerusalem, Bethlehem, a lot of these areas here that occupy much of the Scripture. So that's where we're sitting. Now what's the political setting that we have? When Nehemiah gets there, chapter 2, verse 9, he said, I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. Now why did the king send Nehemiah with basically a palace guard? Because neither the king nor Nehemiah were certain that Nehemiah would arrive in Jerusalem safely for all kinds of reasons. For one reason, he was packing a bunch of money. Number two, he was packing letters that were probably worth more than money because it instructed these people on what they were going to do to help out, something they did not want to do. So he gets there and says, when Salambalat, the Hornite, and I didn't get a chance to find out what the significance of Hornite is, but basically, Sanballat lived in Samaria, and his 
place of residence was primarily Shechem. And Tobiah the Ammonite, Tobiah was over in this territory, and they were relatively good buddies, heard about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Why would that be an issue for these provincial governors? That somebody would come to see to the welfare of the Jewish people that were now living in Jerusalem, that had recently completed the temple, the second temple. Well, remember what was said in chapter 1. These people were living in great distress. If you don't want to have to deal with a group of people, what do you want to do? You want to, one, impoverish them, and two, disgrace them. That means that they end up much lower on the social strata. They end up in a place where you can oppress them in good conscience because they deserve it. Great distress. We read later on in Nehemiah that most of the people who were living around Jerusalem had so little income that they were borrowing money from the few people that did have money, even to the point where they were selling their children into slavery to have enough food to put on the table. And Nehemiah addresses that issue later in the book. So there didn't seem to be a good economic basis for the people who were living around Jerusalem. Remember, they came back primarily with the emphasis on, we're going to build the temple, and God's going to bless us. Well, they built the temple. But the physical blessing they expected to take place seems not to have occurred, and there's a number of reasons for it. The other thing that happens is if you have a city where you have a lot of pilgrims coming through it, what tends to happen to the people who come as pilgrims to a city that doesn't have a wall? What happens when you and I go into a ghetto? Do we get robbed? Do we get rolled? Do we get our money taken from us? Do we get extorted? All of that kind of stuff was going on around Jerusalem. And these provincial rulers around there may well have benefited from some of that. Reproach. Frankly, nobody other than the Persian king and the Jews themselves wanted a temple in Jerusalem or the Jews in Judea. Some of these people that were living here were the great-great-great-great-great-grandsons of the people that the Jews had pushed out when Joshua and the Jewish people came in and started conquering who had been in the land before that God says, kill them all because they're evil and they are to be gone and this is your land. These people didn't want them there. Had a conversation few years ago with a fellow who was a Palestinian. He and his family lived on the border of what we think of today as the Gaza Strip and southern Israel. And I said, you're an engineer, you're working in Portland, Oregon. Why are you here? He said, well, it's pretty simple. When you have a deed for your land that's 2,000 years old, and somebody comes and presents you with a deed that's 4,000 years old, who wins? And he wasn't bitter about it. He was just, that's the way it is. But apparently, some Jewish people who had their ancient records came and presented a 4,000-year-old deed for the property that his family had been farming for a number of years. Now, his family was fortunate he and his brother were both engineers. 
His brother was working on a multi-billion dollar project in Dubai at the time, and he eventually ran, left Portland, Oregon and went and joined his brother in Dubai. But the point that he was making is, yeah, most of us resent the fact that the Jewish people have come back to the land and reclaimed what was theirs. Now that was in 2015. Wind the clock back 2,500 years, and we had the same thing happening again. We had Jews coming back to the land trying to reclaim their ancestral properties from people that had moved in and started, started out as squatters and after a few generations felt like they owned the land. So nobody wanted them there. Other than the king who wanted Yahweh worshipped in Jerusalem and the Jews themselves who felt like they should be there. Now the wall is broken down, why? Remember Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem three times. First time he conquered them, he was very pleasant about it. He took off their leaders, their bright ones, the people like Daniel, Meshach, and Bendigo, and took them back to Babylon. He took all the intelligentsia. He came back again and took all the merchants. But the Jews still made a mess for him because they invited the Egyptians to come up and say, hey, conquer Nebuchadnezzar so we can have our land. And he said, that's enough. And he leveled the city. Now remember what Pastor Rob told us about the stones that are used primarily to build cities in that area. They are limestone. They're relatively porous. And the way that they would conquer the city is they would pour water on the limestone, let it absorb the water, then build a big fire on the limestone and it would expand into steam and fracture the rock and turn the big rocks into small rocks. Now for us, when we want to turn big rocks into small rocks, we're usually dealing with granite and we're doing it with what? Jackhammer, dynamite, all of those kinds of things that go boom, make noise, wiggle us around. No, the way you turn big rocks into small rocks over there is pour water on it and then build a fire. The wall of Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar did it, he took everything that was flammable and burned it. So by the time we get to the place where we are right now, all the big stones are now small stones. And you look at the most ancient parts of Jerusalem, if you go in and do the archaeological things, remember that when Solomon built the temple, he had stones quarried that were the size of large automobiles, SUVs, and had them quarried to exact dimensions so that when they were brought in to build the temple in Solomon's time, you didn't hear a single hammer beating on a stone. The stones were brought in and put in place. But that temple was built with layer of stones, a layer of timbers that had been brought in from the forests in Lebanon, and a layer of stones and a dude thing. The timbers were there to tie it all together so the building wouldn't come apart. Well, when you put enough fire to those timbers in the stones, they burn. So that's part of the problem is, is they didn't have the manpower to go out and quarry new stones. So when it says we're going to rebuild the wall, what we've got around the wall is a bunch of stuff that's now small stones. And it's interesting to think about that. So it's difficult to build when you're working with small material to build a meaningful wall. But the last thing that disturbed these political leaders that were here and here on the north and the east was that somebody was there to seek the welfare 
of the sons of Israel. You now had somebody from the king level down saying, we must do something about these people. That is a major political problem. So here's where we are. This is the stage we have as Nehemiah arrives. So as he comes into Jerusalem, he's heard his brother's stories, and he knows that it's politically a bad scene. He knows that there's poverty galore. He knows that the temple is functioning, but probably not very well. The question is, is how bad is it? So he arrives. Did we time out, Bob? Our projector shut off for some reason. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Oops. Doesn't want to show that slide on me now. Uh, one before it. This one. Nehemiah arrives and he doesn't say where he's staying. But traditionally, the king's buildings were right here on kind of the west and northwest side of the temple. It's where the king's building and the government buildings are located. So, I'm going to guess, and based on what his story tells us, that he was roughly in this area. It says on the third day after he arrived, he went by night. Now, why did he do this at night? It says he didn't want to tell anybody that he was with what was in his heart until he'd fully got it figured out. Chapter 2, verse 9, or verse 10, or 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night, I and a few men who were with me, and did not tell anybody what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night. And if you'll notice, Jerusalem, this point, has relatively small wall area. If you see other maps of Jerusalem, the walls the maps will show are much larger than this, this map. But this appears to be what was left. And it says, he went out through the valley gate, went down here past the refuge gate. Oh, by the way, where else do we know the story of the refuge gate? On the day of Jesus' crucifixion, when they took him outside the city to Gehenna, which was the garbage dump, which was constantly burning because that's the way they got rid of the garbage, the refuge, everything that was coming out of the city. It left the city by this gate, went down here a little further, and went into an area that was called Gehenna. That's where they took Jesus to crucify him. Went past this gate, around the fountain gate, says he went past the king's pool, and ran into a whole pile of rubble about here. Then he went over and went up the Kidron Valley a ways and then apparently came back and around and back through the valley gate and back into the city. It says, in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuge gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Now, during the process of building the temple, back here in Zerubbabel's day, and somewhat during Ezra's day, there had been some reconstruction work on the walls in this area. Not fully finished, nothing much done, but there had been some reconstruction work. But certainly these southern walls down here 
were in terrible repair. Now you've got the Kidron Valley here, which is a fairly narrow, sharp valley. Over here is the Garden of Olives. And Bethany, the village, is off over this direction. Over here, there's another, the Hinnon Valley, which is more open, more gentle valley around Jerusalem. This is another look at this, a little more oblique. Um, this shows the wall in place because it's just easier to define. But if you'll notice, you went out through the, the valley gate, down and around. There's a bunch of refuge here. This is where a lot of stone and stuff, it couldn't get along through here. So we had to back off a little bit and come up this way and then back it around. He did that journey. He said, he went past the fountain gate and the king's pool, and there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. He says, the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I had done, not, nor had I yet as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, he's seeing what could have been and what was. What could have been a wall, a wall to protect the people. Now, we don't think much about walls around here anymore because we typically live in a very open society where we don't do it, and yet most of us are feeling a little bit like we should have more protection than just the walls of our house around us. And some of us, some of our society choose to live within gated communities where there's a wall around our community. Why do we do that? We don't want somebody walking into our neighborhood and taking advantage of what might be on my front doorstep or what might be on the inside of my front door, whether it's locked or not. Now, it's interesting, Nehemiah writes his book in an interesting way. He keeps giving us part of the information Oops. Part of the information about something before he really tells us the whole story. And in this particular case, he identifies a group of people or groups of people before he really tells us what he's going to do about them. He talks about the Jews in this list in verse Verse 16, these are the people who have clear-cut heritage that goes back to the 12 tribes of Israel, goes back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and one of Jacob's children. These are people that can be clearly identified as having Jewish heritage. The priests are an even more select group of Jewish people. They're the ones that go back to Aaron. They're the descendants of Aaron, who was whose brother? Moses' brother. The nobles. Now, why would he distinguish the nobles as distinguished from the Jews or the priests? Remember how Jerusalem was managed by the conquering kings. They would bring somebody in and set them up and say, you're responsible for governing this portion of our kingdom. And Jerusalem being sort of a semi-capital, they had people living in Jerusalem who governed chunks of Palestine around Jerusalem in different directions. These would be the nobles. 
and the officials. Who in the world are the officials? Well, we read later in Nehemiah's book that there's a whole bunch of them that he brought from Susa with him. These are people from the Persian kingdom that he brought with him. They were administrators. They were people who did things. Plus, there were others that the king had sent over there. They were the people who would be what we think of as the government agents that do various things that need to be done. But to a large extent, the ones that Nehemiah seems to be referring to are those that he brought with him. And the other workers. Now that's an interesting phrase. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The other workers who helped build the wall. Who in the world are these other workers? Well, let's let that question dangle for a moment. Because it's a function of who built portions of this wall. And there's a whole bunch of names in here. The first group of other workers that it refers to is the men of Jericho. Now, where was Jericho? Jericho was down on the Jordan River. Jericho was the first place when the Israelites had moved into the land of Israel. That's the first city they conquered. We hear of Jericho frequently during both the Old and the New Testament, particularly in the life of Jesus. Jesus traveled through Jericho fairly regularly. If you remember right, backing up a little bit to our map of the area, Jericho is here. So we have people from Jericho coming up to build a wall around Jerusalem. And we might as well leave it back here for a minute. It says, Zucher the son of Emery, and for the most part when we read through chapter 3, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing right now, when it says somebody the son of, it usually means that that's somebody who had historical records and they can be identified as being a Jew. Zachar, for some reason, doesn't seem to fit that list. The Tekoites, they appeared to be stonecutters or people with capabilities. But here's Tekoa. These are people south of Bethlehem. Why would they come up and build a part of the land? It says, Melthiah the Gibeonite. Now, who were the Gibeon people? If you remember when Joshua came in and they conquered Jericho and Ai and some of the other cities, that there was a fear that went through the land of what we call Israel today that says, these are people to be afraid of. There was a group of people that says, how do we convince them that they should make peace with us? And they went and found a bunch of old wineskins and a bunch of weak old bread and their oldest clothes and their worn out sandals and their broken down donkeys. And they journeyed to the camp where Joshua was. And they said, we come from far enough away that when we started our journey, the bread was fresh, the wineskins were new, the donkeys were fresh, and our sandals were brand new. Please make a treaty with us. They did. And then they found out that these people were from, of all places, Jerusalem, and they were up here in this area, in this right in here, when they made the agreement with them that they wouldn't conquer them. They were people specifically that God had told them to go push out of the land. And yet they made an agreement with them without consulting God. They're still around when David is alive. And they said, okay, here's your job. You're going to bring us fire for the sacrifices. From the time they were conquered, the Gibeon people's job was to bring the wood for the sacrifices. 
before the temple, it was to bring it to the tabernacle. But now that they have a temple in Jerusalem, their job is to bring the wood. So these people have been living right around this area for a long time. Why would they help build a wall? Because their future has become aligned with the future of the Jews. There's a few other people. We could go on through this. Um, they have some officials. Raphia, official of, of half the district of Jerusalem. Shalom, the son of Halshelis, the official of the other half of the district of Jerusalem. Halan, and the inhabitants of Zahoah. So we've got people that are living around here. So we've got a whole group of people, not all Jews, building a part of this wall. It goes on and names a whole bunch of other people. The last group of people in this list are the men of the valley. Which valley is that? The Kidron Valley is too narrow and doesn't have anything to justify. It has to do with the valleys to the west of Jerusalem, headed toward the Mediterranean Sea. Some of these were areas where the Jews had never fully conquered the people that were there. So we've got all of these different people building parts of it. And we could spend a whole Sunday on how they did this. But the most important thing to think about here is to think about what's going to be said. It's just I wanted to point out to you that it wasn't just Jews that Nehemiah got involved in this process. Nehemiah then spoke to the people. Let's see what he said. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are, in, we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. That's remembering what everything that went on in Susa and the king had conquered, had not conquered, but the king had sent the letters and apparently some funding and also about the king's words that he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So they started building. Now we'll learn if we dig a little deeper in Nehemiah, that in 56 days, they restored the wall. Now that has to happen. You're not going to go off someplace else and cut stones and haul them in. They must have used the rubble that they had to build the walls. So what, what did Nehemiah share with these people to plant vision? The question is, is what did he say to them? He first of all pointed out to them that he had been given safe passage to come. He pointed out to them that he had been given an edict by the king and by God to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the gates and to rebuild the temple fortress. That was a building just outside of the temple grounds. And also to build a governor's mansion, a place for Nehemiah and his people will. And in 2.18, we just read, the people said, let us arise and build. Now, there's some political opposition that takes place, and it's interesting to look at what was said. But when Sanballat, remember, he's to the north, and Tobiah, he's to the east, and now we have another person to come on. And Gresham, the Arab, turns out he's to the south down here, heard it. They mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king again? 
And Nehemiah answered them and said, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Now, these are long-standing governors that have been ruling their areas for a period of time and have been sending in reports to Susa regularly about what goes on in their areas. But notice Nehemiah's response. Nehemiah's response has an amazing impact if we stop and think about it. The question is, whose project is this? Nehemiah clearly says, this is God's project. The God of heaven will give us success. Now, it's interesting that the phrase, the God of heaven, started out with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and has carried through the Persian Empire and the various kings that to distinguish Yahweh from all of the other gods that are worshipped by the peoples in these areas, this is the God of heaven, the supreme God, the God over all. And he said, guys, this is God's project. But the second thing he interesting says, therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. Now that is interesting in the sense that he's not saying, we're a bunch of recruits. We're not a bunch of hired workers. We, his servants. Clearly, Nehemiah has talked to the people and said, this is something God has called you to do. This is your mission. This is what you're going to accomplish. And then the last thing is very telling. But you, Tobiah, Sanballat, and Gresham, or Gesem, have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. You are not chosen to do God's work. Therefore, get out of the way. Now, the question that comes to us is, what does chosen mean? Abraham was chosen. His brothers and his cousins were not. Even Lot, who came with him as his nephew, was not chosen. Ishmael was not chosen. Isaac was. Jacob was chosen. And we keep coming down through the line. Moses was chosen to lead. Aaron was chosen to be a priest. We keep coming down the line. We are now to the point here where we have a chosen group of people. But it wasn't just Jews that were chosen. It was those who were willing to identify with the Jews and commit themselves to building the wall. These were God's chosen servants at that time. The question before us, we are believers in Jesus Christ because God chose us. We are chosen. The question is, what wall does God want us to build? Now, the title of our conversation today was Building a Wall and a People. Remember Nehemiah's concern that the people were basically despised, they were in reproach? It's because they did not behave like a chosen people. They did not live like they were supposed to live. 
When Jesus is talking to his disciples, literally hours before his crucifixion, he said, you are chosen. You are to love one another. And because of your love, love that you only have because you are chosen and empowered by me, God, so you have success, others will know who I am. So the question we have before us today, we're chosen. To what wall are we to build? What mission are we to accomplish? What has God called us to do because we are chosen? I ask that question because I have to ask it myself. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will understand not only that we're chosen, but that we're chosen to a purpose, a purpose to honor and glorify you, a purpose that's to reveal you to those around us. Because that is the whole purpose of the Jewish people and the whole purpose of Jerusalem and the whole purpose of the temple is to reveal you to the rest of the world. But if we aren't distinct and aren't different in the way that we live and conduct ourselves, how will anyone else know that you make a difference in our lives and in our world. Father, we pray that we would be willing servants, chosen by you to accomplish your purpose. In Christ's name we pray, amen.